0: This morning I'm going to deliver a truckload of information I am going to go for sensory overload this morning Because I've got a lot to go through I want to talk about prayer in the Old Testament And who knows that the Old Testament's pretty big And I thought perhaps I should divide this into two messages Then I thought, nah, they can handle it Let's cram it all into one and see how we go So, we've talked a bit about the origins of prayer and how that all started in the Old Testament. And because of that, we, we actually have a, a rich relation, history of relationship with God. And as we grow in our Christian faith, who knows that we draw upon that history? We read the Bible, we have the example of, of people in the Old and the New Testament to encourage us, to deepen our understanding, and in fact, deepen our personal connection with God in a way that is miraculous. And In the Bible, we find that the the idea, the doctrine, if you like, of prayer is a form of worship that expresses all the attitudes of the human spirit when we approach God. There's adoration, confession, praise, humble and earnest requests and plain communion or conversation with God in prayer. And the Bible emphasises three things about prayer. Firstly, it emphasises that it's about the character of God. It it emphasises the requirement of the person praying being in a saving or covenant relationship with God. And it also says that for prayer to be effective, that person in a covenant relationship has to enter fully into all the privileges and obligations that that relationship with God entails. Now, we all like the first bit. We like to be in a saving relationship. We like the privileges of that relationship. But the obligations, come on, get real. But the Bible makes it very clear that there are obligations to that relationship. And last week we talked about the fact that prayer is actually divinely inspired and initiated by God himself. A person prays because God has already touched their spirit. And so prayer in the Bible is not a natural response. In fact, in John 4, 24, it says, For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit, And in truth And so that which comes from our flesh Or our sinful nature May be natural But it's certainly not of the spirit Galatians 5.16 tells us So I say let the Holy Spirit guide your lives Then you won't be doing What your sinful nature craves And in the Old Testament To my horror I discovered That uh, acting out of our sinful nature Actually means that the Lord does not hear Every prayer And we see that in Isaiah 1.15 God says, when you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. But, um, I will not listen, though you offer many prayers, for your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. That's a bit harsh, isn't it? He's saying, you know, if you don't get yourselves right, I don't care how how much you pray, la, 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 I'm not listening. You might rise, raise your hands, but I'm not looking. So, you know, he's pretty serious about... Uh, this covenant he's not it turns out he's not a fan of mindless ritual either Isaiah 29:13 and so the lord says these people say they are mine they honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me and their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote let's not get there it doesn't sound as though he likes that sort of stuff and so We can often condemn these people uh, that we read about in the Bible are obviously too stupid to get involved in God the way that we know that they should have. But hang on, to be fair, uh, the Bible history we look back on and rely on as a guide for our prayer life was actually really being lived out by these people uh, that we read about uh, without the uh, benefit of having the book to crib off because that's what we can do, but they, they were living it. They didn't have any cheat sheet. They couldn't look back and say, oh, okay, well, this is what it is. Perhaps I should change my behaviour. And so their relationship with the Lord had to be built without that historical context to guide them. So let's ask the question, why did they develop a prayer life? What was the the idea? Did somebody come up with a, yeah, let's let's pray? I mean, it's like, who was the first person who decided that you could eat an apple or a strawberry? An avocado. You know, there's some weird fruits out there. You know, what, what about a, a kiwi fruit? What about tomato? I mean, that's actually a real example of the fact that uh, in the 16th century, tomatoes were regarded as poisonous to humans, and they were only fed to pigs. And as a result, thousands of peasants died in, the famine in, in a famine in France, because they refused to eat tomatoes. Their pigs survived right royally because they ate the tomatoes, but the humans refused to eat them because they thought they were poisonous. And so somebody had to be brave enough to say, well, stuff this, I'm starving to death, I might as well eat a, eat a tomato. And suddenly thought, oh, hang on, I feel better. I'm getting better. <laughs> but uh, who, who, who works out these things? So why did they develop a prayer life? And it's actually caught up in this whole Old Testament theme of God's Chosen people. Because throughout the Old Testament, there's this strategy that God uses of choosing people to separate themselves to the task of fulfilling God's purpose here on earth. He separates mankind into male and female in the Garden of Eden. And then, then in Genesis 2.24, he commands them to go back and be of one flesh. He separates Noah and his family to, cre- to bring creation, the whole of creation, back into relationship with with God he calls out Abraham and his family to separate themselves from the world in an effort to reunite the world so it sounds a bit weird but to really understand what God is doing here we actually have to take off our New Testament glasses so can we all do that just remove you because we have we have a way of looking at the Bible Which has a bias. We are biased because we have a modern Western interpretation of cultural norms and presuppositions, especially about this concept about being chosen. Because in our culture, um, most New Testament Christians, I would think, the whole concept of being a chosen people implies favour. You know, if if we're a nation set apart, uh, a family, uh, commanded to do God's bidding or God's will, our Western concept tends to have this idea that we are special, that somehow God likes us. And because he likes us and we're someone special, he wants to share us with love to the exclusion of the uh, the unchosen. Is that a word? Unchosen? The, the non the, the riffraff. The people, the people who aren't us. You know, we're, we're the lucky ones. We're the good ones. You know? Did Anybody ever thought that? You know, when God got me, he got a good one? <laughs> yes, I thought so. <laughs> and so we have this feeling that God is pursuing a relationship with us because we're good people. At least I am. And that's what you're thinking. Well, at least I am, the rest of you can, yeah, forget it. Um, but whether any of that's true or not, if we superimpose this thinking... Under the covenants that God made with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, uh, with Joshua and David and other Old Testament characters, then we make a grave misinterpretation of God's purpose here. If you take even just a cursory glance at the stories of the Old Testament, you soon find out that the people who make up this chosen people, especially la- those who lead the chosen people, are a bunch of scoundrels. They're people whose moral character is no better, and sometimes worse, than their pagan neighbours. They trust, they're trusting God's promises as shaky at best, and they stuff up with monotonous regularity. Sometimes the only thing they have going for them is the fact that God has made a covenant with them and not somebody else. Because of this, their sins often get other people into trouble. If you look at the story of Genesis 12, where before their names are changed, young Abram and Sar- Sarai, who are young 80ish I think, um, go to Egypt and even at that age she must have been a pretty good looking person because Abram sort of goes into Egypt and thinks if I say, tell her that she's my wife they're going to murder me and steal her because she's so good looking. I mean I know the feeling, I know the problem that he has. <laughs> and so he tell, he, says, he says to her pretend you're my sister and we'll be safe. And so they go to Egypt and sure enough first thing that happens Pharaoh sees her and says, wow, that's a hottie, I've got to have her. Now I know that that's not politically correct in today's climate, (laughs) but Pharaoh didn't give a stuff. He was in charge of everything, and if you thought he was politically incorrect, he just chopped your head off. Um, And so he invites her to the palace. And because she's Abram's wife, guess what God does? He sends a plague on Pharaoh's household. And Pharaoh discovers that Abram has deceived him. Now, how he, dis- he discovers it isn't actually mentioned in the, in the uh, Scripture, but you've got to g- get this feeling that God visits him and says, hey, you're doing the wrong thing. This is Abram's wife. And you can imagine him saying, but hang on, I didn't know that. Why are you punishing me? I- I'm innocent here. And God says, yeah, sorry about that, but I've got a covenant with him and I'm sticking to it, so you're in trouble. <laughs> and you still think, well, that's hardly fair. Well, that's because Abram wasn't a particularly... Morally upright person and the only thing at that point he had going for him was that he had made a covenant with God and God had to stick to it. And so we can look at this whole Abram and his descendants thing and there are plenty of examples that we see that mean that they're basically human. No more capable, no better looking, no more obedient and certainly not morally superior to their neighbours who haven't been chosen by God. So why did God choose them? I think in simple terms because God needed someone and he picked Abraham and his family and if you look at the covenantal promises God makes to Abraham and others in his lineage there's always the reference that through this family and later through the nation of Israel every nation on earth will be blessed so God has a purpose for that family, for that nation to bring blessing to the whole earth and it is for that purpose and that purpose alone that he makes a covenant with his chosen people so, hopefully that makes us feel better because anybody ever slipped up? Stuffed up? Anybody ever made any mistakes? Everybody, any discovered that perhaps you are perhaps not as honest or morally upright or sort of as good looking as you thought you were? <laughs> it should give us hope. God chooses us for a purpose, not because of our talents. And God chooses us because he knows what is best for us and he knows that with, his, with him in our lives we can actually make a difference that we couldn't without him. So now, if you've set a group of people a monumental task which is going to take generations and impact the whole world, wouldn't you want to be in constant communication with these people? Because I, I, I know that you know, even for a couple of days it's good to get back and get direction on where you're trying to go, in your workplace. It's good to have meetings with your boss every so often so that you don't end up doing things that he doesn't actually want you to do. And so that's why they developed a prayer life, because God wanted to keep them on track. Is anybody here old enough to remember the TV series The Greatest American Hero? No, it was, it was 1981, so I know if you're lying or not. Um, It was a a comedy action sort of series about a high school teacher in America who gets given a suit by a bunch of green aliens which gives him the powers of somebody a bit like Superman. But unlike Superman who has that power without the suit because he's Superman, this guy only has the power when he puts the suit on. And so guess what? This this suit comes with a book of instructions on what the suit will do, how to use it and all of that. And so everything's hunky-dory except... In the very first episode, he loses the instructions. So the rest of the series is all all about how he's got this power uh, and this desire to to do good, but you know, and he handles the flying bit all right, but the landings are always terrible. Um, and you know, by accident, he discovers you know oh, it's heat proof. Thankfully, as he lies under the blast of a rocket jet engine, or rocket engine or something like that. Um, so there's this comedy of errors as he goes on and sort of. While it makes for reasonably um, good comedy TV, it's certainly not the model that God wants for his chosen people to be wandering around not sure what they're capable of or even what to do. So, how did they develop this effective prayer life? Now, I'm going to go up a gear here because there's a lot of scripture, and you can look it up afterwards. Uh, if you can't write it down, or you can watch the message again on YouTube um, or the podcast. I can't remember which or both. So if we look through the Old Testament for prayer, we find there's about 85 unique prayers, an additional 60 psalms, and 14 parts of psalms, which are also marked as prayer. Now, not surprisingly, also as we look through the Old Testament, we can see that there's a progression in the pattern of prayer, <coughs> excuse me, as Abraham's family and later on the nation of Israel get to know God better. Uh, also, we find that the style of prayer as a group, whether it be the family or a nation, changes depending on the circumstances that they find themselves in. I mean, who doesn't play around, pray around their circumstances once in a while? And we can actually change the, trace these changes through four different stages of the Old Testament. And uh, we're going to go through those very quickly. How are we going for time? I've got hours. Um, There's the time of the patriarchs, there's the pre-exile time, time in exile and post-exile. And the first period is characterised by a sort of learning to connect phase. Uh, And actually that's the first time they started to call on the Lord by name. Genesis 4.26 says, When Seth grew up, he had a son and named him Enosh. And at that time, people first began to worship the Lord by name. And in Genesis 21.33 it says Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba and there he worshipped the Lord, the eternal God. And so they, they were beginning to get to know God by name and they also had this directness and familiarity that starts to assert itself in their prayers. And we get prayers like Genesis 15.2 where Abraham replies, and this is, this is, you know, he's being really holy here, Oh sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth So there So it doesn't sound a particularly um, polite prayer Um, And the prayer we looked at last week in uh, Genesis 18.23 Where Abram approaches him and says Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? So these Old Testament characters had no problem actually confronting God with their, their issues And so we get this sense of increasing comfort with praying to the Lord. And prayer in this period also becomes associated with sacrifice, where we see in Genesis 26-25, Isaac built an altar there and worshipped the Lord. He set up his camp at that place and his servants dug another well. So altars start to appear, which is the place where sacrifices are made. And the prayer in conjunction with sacrifice often promised service and faithfulness if the prayer was answered. So they weren't above bargaining. Genesis 28 20 uh, Jacob actually makes a vow he says if God indeed will be with me and protect me on this journey and if he will provide me with food and clothing and I return safely to my father's home so he's set up a few conditional clauses in, the, in his prayer there he says then the Lord will certainly be my God and this memorial pillar I've set up will become a place for worshipping God and I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me and so you know, people aren't backward about coming forward when it comes to their prayers, and so there was a certain boldness that came in. And then we, we progress to what they call the pre-exile period, which, funnily enough, introduces a, a, an emphasis on intercession, usually by people God has assigned to positions such as prophets, priests, and kings. And you sort of think that there's perhaps some foreshadowing going on here, because you know, they're obviously interceding for something that they know is coming. Uh, Numbers 21 7 says the people came to Moses and cried out we have sinned by speaking out against the Lord and against you pray that the Lord will take away the snakes so Moses prayed for the people and 1 Samuel 12 19 pray to the Lord your God for us interesting it's pray to the Lord your God so the people weren't too good at praying on their own or we will die they all said to Samuel for now we have added to our sins by asking for a king So just as a point of interest during this period of intercession, we actually find that there's successful and unsuccessful intercession mentioned and even God forbidding intercession. In Jeremiah 7.16 he says, Pray no more for these people, Jeremiah. Do not weep or pray for them and don't beg me to help them. I will not listen to you. Okay, put you off prayer, wouldn't it? Uh, Of course the ministry of the prophets grew during this time and prayer was indispensable for the revelation and prophetic vision that as seen from this scripture in Daniel 9 in verse 20 he says I went on praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people pleading with the Lord my God for Jerusalem his holy mountain and as I was praying Gabriel whom I'd seen in an earlier vision came swiftly to me at the time of the evening sacrifice and that whole thing goes on as to how Um, Daniel's prayer has actually wrought changes in the heavenly realms that um, the angel Gabriel has come to tell him about and so there's there's this use, this idea that the prophets have come and and they start a whole new uh, era of of prayer and vision and and prophetic foretelling Uh, there's also something we've we've actually got to be careful of because during this time there's a lot of prayers that we use that come out of this prophetic period, things in Jeremiah People often pray, you know, I know the plans and purposes I have for you. They're for good and not for evil. And in Isaiah, there's, you know, by his stripes we shall be healed. Those prayers in the Old Testament are actually directed at a nation, they're not directed at an individual. And so we actually have to be careful when we pray those things, taking them on board as actually prayers that affect us as individuals. Because Jeremiah, when he says, you know, I know the plans and purposes I have for you, they're they're for good and not for evil. When Jeremiah spoke this over the population a couple of years later 50% of them were dead and the other 50% were in exile because they'd been taken away by the Babylonians. So Jeremiah's prayer is actually obviously a long-term prayer over the nation of Israel for them actually to come back and some of those individuals who might have taken it upon themselves to think oh God's God's on my side uh, found themselves dead. So that's probably a message for another time But we do actually have to be careful how we interpret Some of these things we find in the Old Testament And of course the Psalms were written during this time Providing a blend of formality and spontaneity in prayer We have group exhortations like Psalm 100 Shout with joy to the world, to the Lord rather, uh, all the earth Worship the Lord with gladness, come before him singing with joy And we have prayers for pardon, protection, healing Or even a personal plea for mercy, such as Psalm 51, which says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. And there are prayers full of praise, like Psalm 103, it says, Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart I will praise his holy name. And so there's there's a shift, there's a building of the prayer life of the nation of Israel in those times. And so then we have the exile. And we talked a bit about that just a moment ago. They've got these people scattered throughout Babylon. And interestingly enough, there's a a shift in the religious priorities of the whole Jewish people, through necessity, of course. um, And the synagogue actually emerges from this this shift. So the time of the exile is actually the time when the Jewish synagogue was actually born and developed. There was no temple. Communities of Jews were fractured and scattered throughout Babylon. So people had to make the choice to be a Jew rather than just be born into a larger community. And smaller synagogues fulfilled the needs for religious obligation, and as part of that change, prayer became more personal and intimate. And again, in light of their circumstances, the general focus of prayer changed to seeking the personal presence of Yahweh and his blessing, Psalm 63.1. Is an example that says, O oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you, my soul thirsts for you, my whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. And so we, we see there's a, a change in the attitude of prayer there. But post-exile, guess what happens? They come back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. And so this is an opportunity to go back to the sort of prayer life they had before the exile, but things have changed. The temple is rebuilt, but if we look in Ezra and Nehemiah, we see that while there's a return to ritual temple worship, there's also a call for the simplicity of the synagogue meetings and the spontaneity of personal devotion. The spiritual aspect of prayer is emphasised, and prayers even become quite instructive. Like Nehemiah 9.5, Then the leaders of the Levites, and he lists them there, called out to the people, stand up and praise the Lord your God, for he lives from everlasting to everlasting. And then they prayed, may your glorious name be praised, may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. And so we can see within the Old Testament there are certain patterns for prayer, but there certainly aren't any binding regulations governing either the content of the prayer or its ritual and so the sort of prayer that we hear Jesus objecting to, this mechanical prayer, this coercive or prescriptive type of prayer, was actually a relatively new phenomenon in Jesus' time, as the Gospels actually make clear, and was not part of this post-exile time. So how does this Old Testament prayer progression help our own prayer lives? Well, for a start, I think it gives us permission to acknowledge a growth a variation and a progression in our own prayer lives as we get to know God, as we understand better the nature of our relationship with him it's only natural that our prayer focus, style and depth is that somebody blowing your nose or blowing your nose, or is that my microphone? I'm blowing my nose somebody else was, I apologise um, it's only natural that our prayer focus, our style and depth will change and perhaps even ebb and flow which is okay. The other thing that helps, I hope, is that as we continue into the New Testament, where the personal example of Jesus is what guides us in most of our prayer life, once we put our New Testament glasses back on, everybody gives a sigh of relief, to see how he uses the Old Testament, or the Bible as he knew it, to guide us further in our own prayer efforts. We're going to divide, we're going to divide, we're going to dive into that with gusto next week. There might be some division but uh, I'll try to keep mess out of it entirely. But before we we finish, if I can get jawed up, uh, I want to pray for a couple of things this morning. First, as I, I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, effective prayer in the Bible emphasises the requirement that a person be in a saving or covenant relationship with God. To enter a covenant relationship with Jesus takes a heartfelt desire to know him as your personal Lord and Saviour, and the guts to state that desire out loud in prayer. Oh, sorry, I I meant the courage. Same thing. If you have a heartfelt desire and you want to do that and pray that prayer this morning and you're watching here online, then please tick or click the raise hand button that will appear in your chat. A member of our team will get onto you privately and they will be able to pray that prayer with you, encourage you in your next steps. If you're here in person, you want to take that step you actually want to declare that Jesus is your Lord and Saviour it may be for the first time it may be a a reignition of that relationship you have I would love to pray pray with you right here up the front after the service I also want to pray around this this concept I spoke earlier of the purpose that God has for his chosen people and although God has a, a clearly defined purpose for his people as the church or the body of Christ As individuals, it's important to find where God wants us to fit in to that purpose. So right now, I want to pray for you. If you want to know what your purpose is, you want God to reveal that purpose because you you don't know. Or that you know the purpose, but you've lost the passion for it. You want to renew that. Or you just want fresh energy to keep doing what you love and what you're doing now. Or you want a change of direction. You want God to reveal something new for you. You want to know perhaps who to partner with in doing this. You want a revelation on the next step to take or you're you're aching or itching for the next level in what God is wanting you to do. If you want to do any of those things or anything regarding your purpose, you just want a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit this morning to help you sort of to actually believe more in that, to get a revelation on your next steps to actually take you to another place. Then I want to pray with you this morning. First of all, I want to pray with you guys online and then we're going to say goodbye to you and then I'm going to invite people up onto this altar and we'll pray for you in a COVID-safe manner then. So if you're online right now and you want God to bring answers, revelation, certainty or just confirmation regarding your God-given purpose then I want you just to bow your head right where you are whether you're sitting on your couch, standing at the kitchen window, whether you've got a cup of coffee in hand, put it down, perhaps might be a good idea. And just bow your heads as I pray. Lord, I pray right now to those people online that you reveal yourself to those who are diligently seeking you. I thank you for answers to their uncertainties. I thank you for revealing, renewing and restoring that purpose you have placed within them. Give them the encouragement, the strength, the refreshing to fulfill that purpose as you've intended. In Jesus' name. Amen.